Science Friday is supported by Dell. Seasons change. Why not your gaming tech? Upgrade now during Alienware Summer Sale Event and save on select next-gen Alienware gaming PCs and more. Pair your impressive skills with our advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor, featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup. Exceptional prices and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Science Friday is supported by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. WNYC Studios is supported by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, software for technical computing and model-based design. MathWorks, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Ever wonder why it feels so good to pop a piece of, say, I don't know, holiday chocolate in your mouth? Most of the aversion for food, if you think of or liking, actually comes from texture, which is much, much less studied. We always say about taste, but food is much more than that. It's Friday, December 29th, but you know it tastes just like Science Friday. I'm sci-fi producer Shoshana Buxbaum. A piece of good chocolate melting in your mouth is one of life's greatest pleasures. Coming up, we'll talk with a researcher who created a sort of artificial tongue to better understand the friction required to taste a tasty piece of chocolate. But first, looking at the science of owls. Here's SciFry's John Dankosky. I love these birds. I find them mysterious. In recent years, too, I've been seeing a lot of them in the woods near my house. I love how they can just hunt so silently, but also make really distinctive sounds when they want to be heard. I love having them watch me from the trees. I, I could go on forever, but I, needless to say, I really, really love owls. And scientists are learning a lot more about why they're such good predators, uh, how their hearing and their night vision is so sharp and how their flight is just so quiet. So here to talk more about all things owls is my guest, Jennifer Ackerman. She's the author of a new book, What an Owl Knows, the new science of the world's most enigmatic birds. She's based in Charlottesville, Virginia. Jennifer, welcome back to Science Friday. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. The hoot of the owl is probably the most recognizable bird call that we have, but it's not just hoots that owls make or shrieks. They've got a very sophisticated form of communication. What have scientists learned about how owls communicate? Yeah, well, they've learned that a hoot is not just a hoot. You know, it's one of the really delightful surprises um, I learned in my research. Owls have very elaborate vocal repertoires that are really teeming with meaning. You know, they have greeting hoots and territorial hoots and emphatic hoots. 
And they don't just hoot, you know, they chitter, squawk, squeal, and their different calls communicate really highly specific information about their sex, their size, their weight, their individual identity, and even their, their state of mind. And decoding some of these vocalizations uh, using machine learning has revealed something pretty interesting, that owls might not be as monogamous as we thought. It's true. And, and the way we've learned this is that it turns out that adult owls have highly distinctive voices, and they can actually recognize one another by voice alone. And now we, too, can identify individual wild owls living in the woods by these unique territorial hoots. And that means two things, that researchers can actually monitor these owl populations more accurately. And that is a really important tool for conservation, but also they can actually observe by listening who's mating with whom and whether couples are in fact staying together. And, you know, the wisdom had been that most species of owls were monogamous, you know, pairs mated for life. And it turns out to be not so, you know, to the great surprise of, of scientists, there's often so much mate switching among the owls they're monitoring that it's hard to keep up. There are so many distinctive owl species, and you talk about so many of them in your book. I want to talk about a few of them, and we'll start with the great gray owl, this kind of iconic bird. It's really impressive when it comes to its hearing. And one of the facts in your book that fascinated me the most is that they're able to hear a vole scurrying under a foot of snow. How are they able to do this? Yeah, this is this was the thing that just blew me away about a great gray owl is, you know, they can from the air, they can hear a vole or a mouse tunneling under as much as 18 inches of snow. That's just so remarkable. It was really almost, you know, four or five decades ago in the 1960s that the famous biologist Roger Payne, you know, he showed that an owl can actually catch a mouse in the pitch black relying only on sound. And it turns out, you know, owls that hunt by ear, like like barn owls and great gray owls, their heads are really just designed for listening. They have these big facial discs and they act like a kind of big feathered external ear. It's kind of like a satellite dish for collecting sound. And this facial disc channels the sound toward their ears. And it's what inside those ears that's really so remarkable and and scientists have begun to tease apart lately that they they describe an owl's inner ears as the the race cars the ferraris of sound sensitivity <laughs> and it's true you know the owls have these really big cochlea they're the hearing organs in the brain in a bird like the barn owl like the cochlea is just crazy long. It's like three or four times as long as the cochlea of most other birds. And that gives barn owls, great gray owls, a sense of hearing that's really almost unequaled in the animal world. So they're very sensitive to sound. They hear very well. But what makes them such efficient predators is then they like don't make any noise. Prey can't hear them coming. Even the most silent predator birds, other than owls, you can hear them flapping down what is it about owls' wings that make them so silent? Yeah, it's really, I think it's one of the, the great wonders of the bird world is an, an owl's quiet flight. And they can fly quietly in part because they have what's called low wing loading, and that's that their wings are, are very big in relation to their bodies. So their flight is very buoyant and slow. 
but it's also because of the really ingenious design of their wings and feathers, which kind of squelch the normal sounds that bird wings and feathers make. Owls have three really remarkable features that, that hush their flight, and they have this, it's called a comb, a row of really fine hair-like bristles that kind of extend forward along the leading edge of the wing where it meets the oncoming air. And when the air hits that comb, the serrations in those little bristles, they break up the turbulence that normally causes a lot of noise on a bird's wing. And that effectively suppresses the the kind of swoosh sound that, that usually is made by a bird's wing. And then they have a little row of wispy vein fringes on the the, the rear edge of the wing that serves a similar function. And then, this is the really cool thing, they have this soft layer of velvet that coats the feathers in the whole wing, and that silences any kind of rubbing together noise that the, the feathers might make in another bird. Now, owls' eyesight is also pretty different from other birds. How is it different? For one thing, they have eyes that are really big for their body size. If, if our eyes were in similar proportion to our bodies as as an owl's eyes are to its body. They'd be about the size of an orange and weigh almost four pounds. So (laughs) owl eyes are super big. They're also um, tubular and they're rigid and locked in their sockets in in a kind of forward gaze like ours are. Their forward-facing eyes gives them binocular vision, which is a really big advantage in in zeroing in on moving prey the way they have to. But, you know, also having your eyes locked in place, that has consequences. You know, owls can't move their eyes, so they actually have to move their heads to keep something in sight. It's a myth that owls can actually rotate their heads full circle, but some species can turn their heads almost three quarters of the way around, which is like three times the the twisting flexibility that we humans have. I'm John Dankosky, and this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Let's talk about another iconic owl species, and this is a little owl, burrowing owls. And I want to hear where they live and what they do, but could you first describe a burrowing owl for for someone who's never seen one before? (laughs) Yeah, well, they are just... The most comical, kind of adorable little creatures, they're they're just heads on long, stilt-like legs, and they have this habit of kind of cocking their heads in in curiosity. They're very cartoon-like and human-like at the same time. First of all, they live in 24 countries in North and South America, so they're very widespread in the New World. And they nest underground in burrows that are dug by, oh, prairie dogs, woodchucks, skunks, badgers, armadillos, and sometimes even under human-made structures. You know, I've, I've seen them nesting under piles of debris or like little openings beneath pavement. And uh, one of the really cool things about these little owls that I learned in researching the book is they actually decorate the outside of their burrows with, with all kinds of stuff, all kinds of treasures, you know, stuff like like dung, bison dung or coyote scat. Um, they, they decorate with bits of wood, bones, moss, and swatches of fabric. It's kind of like whatever they can find. And they actually have preferred colors of things. They like red and white over blue and green, for instance. But what was interesting to me is that all this decorating isn't about mate attraction or courting the way it is uh, in some birds. 
because the, the male only begins decorating after his mate has started nesting and laying eggs. And the, the decorations are really meant to convey to other males that the burrow is occupied. So a male is saying, you know, don't mess with me. I own this place. Look at all this stuff I collected. <laughs> the researcher who studies these birds, David Johnson, told, said to me, if you want to show you're a tough guy in the world of burrowing owls, decorate. I just, <laughs> I just love that. I mean, who knew? <laughs> So you, you've gotten to meet quite a few owls in person. What's it like to be near an owl, to get up close and personal and actually see it doing its its owly things? Yeah, I think the, the most exciting experience for me was I was in the field in western Montana with Denver Holt, who's, I think he's considered probably one of the world's foremost experts on owls. And I had the opportunity to hold one of these it was a long-eared owl, and it was just an incredible experience because her her legs were these big, strong legs, these killer talons, you know, tucked between my fingers. But her wings were, you know, soft as rabbit's fur. And that was the thing about owls, you know, they're just, they're ferocious, and also they're sort of soft and tender. This, this owl was incredibly cute, but also like a brutal killer. This bird, she kind of locked eyes with me in this this cat-like stare, and, and I just felt like, you know, there we were, eye to eye, creature to creature, and it just felt like such a a powerful connection, you know, both of us questioning, what what are you? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? And I, you know, I just held her for a while and marveled at how, how beautiful she was and how superbly adapted to her world. Really, so quiet, so skilled. It was really an amazing experience. They, they really are remarkable animals. Uh, Jennifer Ackerman is the author of What an Owl Knows: The New Science, the World's Most Enigmatic Birds. She's based in Charlottesville, Virginia. Jennifer, thanks so much for the book and for bringing us all these great stories. Thank you so much for having me here, John. It's been a delight. And if you want to read an excerpt of the book, go to sciencefriday.com slash owls. WNYC Studios is supported by Wondery, presenting Wow in the World. Hosted by Guy Raz and Mindy Thomas, Wow in the World is an adventure-filled Cartoon for the Ear podcast, all about amazing innovations in science and technology for curious kids and their grown-ups. Whether it's exploring the wows of slow-melting ice cream, or why we get a brain freeze when we're enjoying a cold, tasty treat, or even ways we can keep our planet cool, Wow in the World always has a new discovery that will leave the whole family saying, Wow! And this summer, when you listen to Wow in the World, you can also hear weekly Wow missions that will send you on a real-life scavenger hunt to discover the wows of your world. This summer, bring your imagination out into the world and find your wow. Listen to Wow in the World wherever you get your podcasts. Visit wondery.com slash summerofwow to find new episodes and to download scavenger hunts for the whole family. WNYC Studios is supported by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Using science, the law, and people power, NRDC is committed to confronting the climate crisis, protecting public health, and safeguarding nature. They address the impact of fossil fuels on communities and our environment. They help protect wildlife, public lands, and irreplaceable ecosystems that all living things depend on. They work to enact policies for clean air, clean water, and access to nature for all. You can help NRDC safeguard the earth for future generations. Visit nrdc.org WNYC for more information. This episode of Science Friday is brought to you by Shark Week, the podcast from Discovery Channel. 
Sharks have been the subject of lore and legend for centuries, and a lot of what we think is shark fact is actually shark fiction. On Shark Week, the podcast, uncover the scientific explanation behind some of the weirdest shark tales. Listen to Shark Week, the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Science Friday is supported by Zbiotics. The team of PhD scientists at Zbiotics are tackling rough mornings after drinking with their new pre alcohol probiotic. This probiotic breaks down the byproduct of alcohol while you drink and sets you up for a great next day. Check out the cutting-edge technology for yourself at zbiotics.com Friday and use the code Friday to get 10% off your first order. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. That's zbiotics.com Friday and use the code Friday at checkout for 15% off. I don't know about you, but for me, at this time of the year, it's hard to get away from the snacks. Holiday cookies, maybe that special sourdough bread, a glass of eggnog, and a lot of chocolate. Hot chocolate, fancy candies. Well, go grab a piece right now if you have one, because for the rest of the hour, we're talking about how chocolate makes you feel. And no, 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 I'm not talking about loved or happy but the actual physics of how it feels in your mouth, because that's part of the secret of enjoying chocolate, isn't it? Joining me now is Dr. Anwesha Stocker. She's a professor of colloids and surfaces at the University of Leeds in Leeds, UK. Her group recently wrote about this phenomenon in the journal ACS, Applied Materials and Interfaces. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you so much, Ira, for having me. You're welcome. Now, I know your team developed a sort of artificial tongue not, not so much to taste the samples, but to investigate the feel of the food. Exactly, to understand the friction, what happens in the mouth, much more from a textural perspective. And why is that important? So, you know, most of the aversion for food, if you think of or liking, actually comes from texture, which is much, much less studied. Uh, we always say about taste, but food is much more than that. Uh, so we developed this tongue to really understand the physics, what goes on in the mouth when you rub a food against a surface, and chocolate happens to be the fun material to work with. <laughs> All right, let's get right into that. If I take a bite of chocolate, what's going on with the chocolate in my mouth? With the premium chocolates, what do you do? So you just don't chew, chew, chew. You, you put it in your mouth, either you lick it against your tongue, like appreciate the feel. And then gradually and gradually, it starts melting in your mouth. So it's a face change material. So it melts in your mouth. But this whole process happens in a couple of seconds. Uh, so what we did in our study was to understand this process, to dissect this few seconds into exactly what happens in the mouth. So when you put the chocolate in your mouth, when you rub it against your tongue, when it melts, when it mixes with saliva, what are the exact things that goes on and why, for example, fat matters? Does it matter, uh, the content of fat and so on? Well, tell us, what, what, what did you find happening? What happens? Take us through the, the steps of what's going on in your mouth with the initial feel and then uh, the melting and so on. So, so what we did is we, we took dark chocolate as a model uh, and then uh, with different fat content. Uh, and then we rubbed it against this artificial tongue. And what we realized was very interesting. So when you take the chocolate in your mouth, it's just the first step. That is where it matters the most, the calorie content. 
that we see there is a very interesting difference in friction between a 70% fat chocolate versus a 90% fat chocolate. But after that, when it has started melting and mixing with saliva, it's actually saliva drives the game. So you don't see so much of the calorie content affecting. Of course, you need those fat to create the feel, but it matters less as compared to the initial touch. Hmm. So if I wanted to optimize that silky feel, would I front load the fat content into the surface of the piece? In principle, yes, exactly. So there it matters way more to think about the silky mouthfeel, to think about the right texture, what you create for. Uh, whereas in the body, it matters less as uh, maybe the protagonist there is much more saliva driven rather than the fat driven. Now, I know that you did not invent a new chocolate. You, your work was done using off-the-shelf chocolate samples from the store. But how easy would it be to engineer a chocolate with the properties that you would like? Is it as simple as have a low-fat piece, then dip it in a shell of fattier stuff? Or how difficult is it? Yeah, that will be the obvious one, isn't it? To create a clear kind of material. But you know, if you if you look at the history of chocolate making, it will be difficult because it is made from cocoa beans and stuff and a lot of flavoring material come in that picture. But if you see how food manufacturing is evolving, we have 3D printing now. So there are a lot of things that's going on in terms of the technology. So imagine a situation where we are printing our chocolate in the way we want at our home. So that is the kind of a you know, utopia, it seems like at the moment, but it's not. Like in, in few years down the line, we will have that. And we have that actually in manufacturing in many countries. The other thing to think about is that there are also a lot of chocolates which are not made with cocoa butter, like composites and compound fat, vegetables fat, and so on, where we can make a lot of changes in the process to make those kind of chocolate, which has a much more outer surface layer of fat versus inner. But again, I want to stress, we ne did not make a chocolate. Uh, so it will be an <laughs> interesting challenge to take, of course. If mouthfeel, as you talk about it, if the texture is so important for that first bite of food, does your tongue know this? Uh, is it especially equipped to, to feel the texture as well as taste it? So this is very interesting, you know? So if you think of the tongue, it's, it's a muscular material, but it has a lot of features. Uh, and if I make it very simple, you have a fungiform papillae, which contains taste part, and the filiform papillae, which does not contain any taste part. And they are much more numerous in the number. So these features in the, in the mouth, they are just there for, for speech and for friction and for detecting texture. So how cool is that? That is cool. So I think a lot of and studies needs to be there in this area to understand texture and how does texture contribute to liking of food. Uh, we know it, it, it does contribute to disliking. People don't like, you know, mushy material, for example. It's all linked to texture rather than, rather than taste. It can still be sweet, but the texture matters. Are, are there other foods that this research applies to as well? So we said it will definitely, the mechanisms which we propose will apply to face change materials like, like ice cream, like uh, cheese and so on. Uh, but we need more work to understand whether it can be applied to other section of food, which is non-face change material as well. But at the moment, we have only looked at face change material like chocolate or ice cream, which contains some amount of uh, fat as a key ingredient. That's crazy to learn that most of the papillae in the tongue have no taste buds, but are are there for touch. So if we know this now, 
and our listeners have that piece of chocolate that I asked them to get, and they want to try this for science, how should they taste their chocolate sample? So they should taste their chocolate sample like the way it is, but just close your eyes and don't think about sweetness, means. Don't say it's just sweet. That's the last thing I want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> you want to hear how it feels. Exactly. That's correct. Dr. Sarkar, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Dr. Anwesha Sarkar, she's a professor of colloids and surfaces. Yes, that exists in the School of Food Science and Nutrition at the University of Leeds in Leeds, UK. That's it for today. A lot of folks helped make this show happen, including Danielle Johnson, Jason Rosenberg, Lois Parsley, Ariel Zitch, and many more. Next time, we'll tackle a tough philosophical question. Is math real? We'll see you next week. I'm sci-fi producer Shoshana Buxbaum. Hey there, folks. Ira here. I'm counting down the minutes on what has been another long year and reminding you that this is your last chance to make a donation for 2023. We still have that dollar-for-dollar donation match in effect, so take advantage of that and make your gift now. Don't wait. Science Friday is depending on you. So please go to sciencefriday.com support. Each one of you can make a difference in our work. From everybody at Science Friday, I wish you a happy and science-filled new year. And thanks. WNYC Studios is brought to you by ZBiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with ZBiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.